This is how he concludes. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. Well, as Nathaniel said, uh, this is our final uh, look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you are new with us, um, at any time we touch base with the book of Ecclesiastes, any, any portion of it, you can catch on very quickly as to what the book is about. And... Uh, it is, this is a beautiful little section uh, that has a bit of poetry to it, and we're going to look at that uh, look at that section and endeavor today to figure out how on earth we can find hope in such a strong exhortation to simply just fear God and keep His commandments. Uh, it's time for graduations, isn't it? It's time for um, high school and college students to uh, to move on to the next phase in their life. And uh, one of the popular books that's given uh, this time of year is uh, Oh, the Places You'll Go by that great theologian, uh, Dr. Seuss. And uh, I have a little bit of that, of his poetry uh, with us today. In that book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, there is a place called the Waiting Place. And I think this will connect a bit with Ecclesiastes. That will be my job in the next few moments. In this place called the waiting place, it goes like this. They're waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for wind to fly a kite or waiting around for Friday night or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake or a pot to boil or a better break or a string of pearls or a pair of pants or a wig with curls or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. As we look at this final chapter of Ecclesiastes, there is a great emphasis upon it's time. It's time to, to conclude some things. It's time to realize. It's time to move out and respond. Solomon has now concluded his, his great final thoughts for us. And let's come before our God, and will you join me in prayer as we consider this great, uh, this great text. Father, I pray that you will mobilize us and that our faith will be quite busy, that you will 
show us the grandeur of the gospel as we look at this text. And I thank you that you have been just more and more faithful to us as a congregation, that we could see more and more Jesus Christ in this ancient wisdom literature. And so open our eyes now, Lord, help us be on the edge of our seats, because you are going to speak to us through this inspired word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so it's time. It's time for us to respond. Take a look at your outline if you want to follow along. It's time for us to remember, and it's time for us to realize. Solomon has been putting together his amazing book of Ecclesiastes. He has had a a great deal of time to put together uh, thoughtful, condensed sayings. He has, in verse 9, put together his knowledge, and he has weighed what we should hear. He has thought about people's lives, of, of people's circumstances. He has studied foolishness and folly. He's engaged in those pursuits himself. And he's trying to put it together with poetry, poetry that will touch the heart. In verse 10, we learn that he's tried to make these words delightful. I didn't know that Ecclesiastes could be delightful. But Solomon is saying, yes, I have thought these things through and I've tried to make them poetic and helpful, exact truth for the heart. He has used poetry. Why not? Why not use flash and beauty and uh, thoughtfulness to create um, memorable sayings? And so he's done something remarkable in this book to get us, to get our attention. He's wedded two things that don't generally go together, truth and beauty. Truth tends to be objective. In our culture today, truth is subjective, and everybody goes their own way. The truth is within you, or there's a deep skepticism. Who can come to a conclusion about truth? Most universities have given up on the the pursuit of truth. But Solomon's saying, no, there is truth. And I've sought to put it together for you and to make it attractive and beautiful. And then in verse 11, it's very interesting. He says, these truths, these poetic statements are like goads. Look at verse 11. They're like goads. A goad is an old term for us, a stick or a prod that is used particularly for oxen. I've only seen an oxen once in my life. Can you raise your hand? How many of you have ever seen an oxen? Real quickly. All right, not about half the crowd. Okay, very interesting. Uh, in Michigan, there was an event that I went to, and there was an oxen there. Uh, and I, I didn't, I didn't, as I approached this animal, I didn't, what is that? It's not a cow. It's not a steer. What, what is it? It's this tall, uh, gray-white kind of creature that's just way above you. And it's very docile. And it can, it can, it can stand around for hours and do nothing. It just stands there. It waits to be led. It waits to be motivated, to be prodded, to be directed. And Solomon uses this term goads. Look at verse 11. These are to be like goads to force people to think about subjects that you'd not normally think about. Solomon has been purposely trying to, well, let me just put it this way, to whack the back of your legs and to make you think about things that you'd normally not want to think about. He has, he has made these like goads to awaken your thoughts, get out of the waiting place, 
where you're forever waiting to respond. And he has been uh, prodding us along with questions like, are you sure you know what you're doing? Are you sure you know what you're pursuing? Are you sure this is the right path? Are you sure you found lasting joy? Will you find lasting joy by going down this trail? How's it going making that, that sculpture out of steam? He's been prodding us to think, what do you mean? I'm after something important here. Everyone's going after this. What do you mean? And he's begun this process of shepherding us with God's love, with thoughtful, penetrating questions and poetry. And then he uses this very strange phrase. There's a simile here. Look at verse 11, like nails. See that there? Like nails, or to be like nails. Well, nails are fixed, fixed in a wall. Uh, nails hold things up. Nails hold a, a house together. Uh, nails are permanent. And he says that these nails are from one shepherd. Do you see the rest of verse 11? One shepherd. And commentators, very interesting, he says that commentators say that what Solomon is presenting here is a community that has enough nails in it where people can think in a common way about truth. That they're all together in their understanding of what they should be pursuing. Imagine we as a community of God's people, we have it all nailed together that we know what we shouldn't pursue, and we know what we should pursue. We're not forever just waiting around trying to figure things out. We actually have come to some conclusions. You see, it's time to respond to what we've been given. And that's, this all comes from one shepherd. It's interesting, the imagery of a shepherd in the Bible, Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, what? Want. This is, this is God's love for us. These, these prods, these goads that have caused us to think about the pursuits of our life, the vanity of our pursuits, and God in his shepherding love has said, I'm after you to, sh- to reshape your love, to reshape your wants, and to care for you, and to direct your life in a loving way. And then Solomon concludes some of his poetry here. He essentially says in verse 12, he says, Beware, my son. Beware, my son, beyond, of, of anything beyond these. Look at, look at verse 12. In other words, beyond these wise sayings I put together, be careful. The, the, if you turn to the making of books or reading of books, be careful. I've given you enough, my son. Be wise regarding these sayings. My son, come to a conclusion. Do not be forever thinking, I don't know enough. Do you know people like that? Are you one of them? Solomon is drawing his net tighter and tighter. And he's saying, do not be forever thinking, I'm unable to choose a course in life. He illustrates it by the collecting of, and reading of books. Now, obviously, I look out here and I know there's lots of book readers out here. And the point for you, I think, is that you have made important conclusions about Jesus Christ and you're informing your mind about what it looks like to be a Christian and informing your mind, 
uh, on different different subjects to serve God with that new information, a different motivation. Solomon's pressing in, saying, really, really get this. A few things are necessary. Don't turn away with an indifferent response. Solomon's almost out of ink. The preacher's almost out of words. It's interesting to watch Jesus as people would come and they would listen to him and they would, and they would realize that he's bringing them to a point of decision and they would say, they would say I, want a, I want a few more days to think about it. It's interesting how Jesus would catch them at that moment and say, oh no, do not turn away. Do not remove your hands from the plow. It's the moment of decision. How long will you be in the waiting place? It's time to respond. And secondly, it's time to remember. Now look at verse 13. It's time to remember one inescapable reality. He says here in verse 13, the end of the matter, here it is, Solomon, oh, you've come to a conclusion. All has been heard. It's so great when preachers finally wrap it up. Here it is. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Whew. He, he comes to a conclusion. Much of what Solomon has been challenging is the notion that you can have something substantive in this life without God. You can, you can pursue what is meaningful without God. He has been challenging the notion that you can find life without God. And now he's, he's centering his focus. He's anchoring our feet upon something really solid. The fumes of modern thought, uh, or the modern thought, I should say this, modern thought is actually borrowing from Christian thought in order to find meaning in life. Let me say that again. Modern thought, modern thinkers, you're... Your, your New York Times, your Honolulu Advertiser, your popular media, they're, every time they're using terms like justice or good or even evil, they're borrowing from Christian thinking. It's the fumes of Christian thought that are still, still in, the, in, the, in the newscasting room making sense of the world or trying to make sense of the world. There's some still sense that our, we should be rooted in what is right or rooted in what ought to be, rooted in, what, in some sense of some transcendent truth. Something is out there. Solomon's saying, someone is out there, and your response as a human being is to put him in his place, understand him in his place, put first things first, lest your feet be rooted firmly in midair. And so he's pressing, he's drawing his net in, he's pressing his, his readers, his original audience to realize, Israel, you are in great danger. You must fear God and you must keep his commandments lest you float away with the other civilizations around you that are fading and turning into dust. Ancient man and modern man has been in a pursuit of an escape from reason and an escape from reality. As we look out upon the created world, though, the created world is now res is responding perfectly to God. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens are, are telling of the glory of God. 
The heavens, the, the celestial bodies, the stars and the planets are communicating. The, the, the heavens themselves and the universe itself is in sync with, with the, their purposes. Venus this week traveled between the earth and the sun, and, and it captured many, many people's attention. Venus is cooperating in the whole system of, of this universe to give God glory. The point is, Solomon is realizing he's on the edges of something. What makes our lives so futile and so meaningless is that we are fundamentally disconnected from the one who makes the meaning in the, at the, begin, in the, in the first place. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is, what's the chief end of man? The chief end of man, hear this rootedness, hear this meaning, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, what Solomon concludes with is, a, is an exhortation. It's just a straight exhortation. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the full and complete duty of man. Now, what you have to grasp here is that this really is law. This is an exhortation uh, of law. It, it's, it's very similar to the Ten Commandments. It, you shall have no other gods before me, to quote the first Ten Commandments. So um, this is a law, and, and now you're hearing it. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's the whole duty of man. Now, as a gospel preacher, I have a responsibility at this point. And I can't close the sermon. I can't land this plane. I can't. I can't just tell you that. I can't just exhort you to fear God and keep his commandments, and you'll find greater meaning in life or give you some sort of hope as to why you should do that. This is law coming to you, and the response, the honest response as you hear that, fear God, put him in his right place, acknowledge him like the planets acknowledge him, like Venus acknowledges him. Get it together, people, and you'll find something wonderful in life or whatever the promise might be if you keep this law. I have to, I have to tell you, that you will fall into greater and greater despair if you just walk away today and, and you just hear the preacher tell you, fear God, keep his commandments, and try harder with this duty. I have a note in my, my, my notes right here. It says, full stop. Right there, full stop. Don't go any further, preacher. And then it says, read Romans 3. And here's what should be going on in this room right now. Now we know, Romans 3, 19, now we know that whatever the law says, this is Solomon, Ecclesiastes 12, and we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if I stood up here for the next 10 more minutes and just exhorted you and gave you, I gave you ideas on how you could fear God more or how he could become more important to you or somehow you could just do this better. I could give you principles. I could give you keys to keeping the fear of God in your house or something. I could go on and on and on about this. It would be a wrong application of the law as if you could do it. The purpose of the law, the purpose of this exhortation is to depress us. 
and to, and to evacuate our hearts and our wills of all desire and to give us this sense of, I am cursed. I am unable. What do you mean, preacher? You can't just leave me in this, this old poetic wisdom book that just exhorts me to fear God and keep his commandments. I can't. We are to abandon all hope of ever keeping what Solomon has exhorted us to do. Our mouth should be stopped. The preacher should not go on to give you principles and keys on how to do this. Solomon is on the edges of something. The law is beautiful and good. This should be functioning in us. This reverence for God. God in his first place, in first things first, as C.S. Lewis put it. Meaning that if you put God in his first place, you'll love secondary things even better. The idea is that Solomon is on to something. He has a sense that there's an inescapable reality. You must, as a human being, do this in order to, to find meaning, to become rehuman again. But you cannot do your duty. You can just learn of your duty, but you will not be given power to do it. But he's on the edge of something here. He realizes that if God would so work in the heart, if God could so produce this, then there would in fact be deep, deep meaning brought to anyone who has that experience. But here we have sheer exhortation to do your duty. And it is my responsibility and the elders' responsibility here as a church to now lift the burden of the law from you and point you to Jesus Christ. He is the law keeper. He is the one who fulfilled your responsibilities. There has never been anyone who feared God, his Father, more than Jesus Christ. And he lived this life for you. He kept the commandments for you. And so we must realize there is this inescapable reality, that is, that God's law should press in upon you It should draw all the confidence out of yourself. It would be perfectly appropriate for you at this moment to say, I am despairing of my obedience. I see it doesn't fall. It it does not measure up. It would be perfectly right for you at this point to say, um, who can rightly do that? Who does that? In fact, to stop pretending that you ever could. This will draw you out of the waiting place. This this sheer preaching of the grace that's in Jesus Christ, Luther said that faith is a busy thing. And and if if faith as a gift would be given to you, repentance as a gift would be given to you, you will be amazed how you'll be drawn to love this God and you'll be drawn to obey this God. And what will actually happen, you could define it in terms of the fear of God. It's just functioning in you. It's just what it means to be a human being. God's in his rightful place. Human beings are in their rightful place. Your career's in his rightful place. Your family's in his rightful place. How does it happen? It happens because you have been prodded or Solomon's final goad has hammered you and has hammered me to say, I can't. I cry. I cry only for God's mercy. And so, 
in deep, brutal honesty, we now go on to verse 14. I cried out for mercy, and now we find out that God will bring everything into judgment and that all the secret things, whether good or bad, will be brought out. And this is how, this is how he concludes his, 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 his letter, his, his, his writings. He now is applying Judgment Day to people. One more uh, attempt to wake up sinners, to have them abandon all hope of personal confidence. I have enough secrets to awaken me to my need. I have a great need, and I need to have a Savior who can help me with the terror of facing a just and holy God. I am now uh, moving away from flattering myself as if I have kept God's law. Judgment day is not a comfortable idea. I do not believe that even if I compare myself to my neighbor or, or, or the church or Christians or whatever, if I'm honestly assessing myself before a holy God, I realize I am in deep trouble Some people don't respond to that way at all, and some people say, bring it on. And I'll bring along uh, uh, the Christians I know, or the church that hurt me. They're absolutely convinced that they're going to do fine on Judgment Day. They'd have no fear of God. You you shouldn't be surprised, actually, that that's actually the experience that you'll have, and, and you are actually recovering from. We do not, by nature, have the fear of God. We actually are arrogant toward God. We can't see the beauty of God and the wonder of God, and we're perfectly fine with that. We find other gods to entertain us and substitute gods, and, and they're cruel towards us, but we're happy with that. We're actually, we're actually happy not experiencing the fear of God. It isn't the natural thing for someone walking down, downtown Kailua right now. They are not experiencing the fear of God. It's not in their system And even if you had someone sort of provide this for them, there would be a reason somehow, a reason for them, so they think, to turn away from it. So we actually desire to be deceived. We actually desire to be blind. And so it's time to realize personal deception. And I really want to speak to you. I want to speak to you and I want to ask you, are you... you, Are you aware that your life is before a holy God? Are you aware of it? Are you aware, and and I speak to you as a a non-Christian, are you aware that your sense, your conscience, are you growing in awareness of, 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 I sense that I am falling short of a perfect moral standard and I don't have, any way to account for myself on Judgment Day. If you're a Christian here, if you're a professing Christian, do you have a secret life? Has God's gospel, this wonderful gospel, not moved your heart, the beauty of God, the wonder of God? Something's up. Something's up. Some desire. Something's grabbed a hold of you. Now, here's what you need to hear. There's some, some perpetual, continual disobedience and, and sinfulness 
and you sense its shame and you sense its guilt. And, and now here's what I have to give you. I have to give you a greater Savior than you ever imagined. I can't just prod you or goad you and say, stop that. You, you claim to be a Christian. You're doing that. that that's not going to work. I can put pressure on your heart, and you might respond to me because I'm the pastor. Oh, I don't know. Okay, I'll, do, I'll try. And about three weeks into it, you'll fall flat on your face. One tendency we have is that if we really want to get going in our Christian life, we sort of just put the pedal to the metal and, and do more law. You see? It's an idea that comes from Michael Horton, who's a popular theologian. In other words, we just put more, more, you want to really get the Christian life going, we'll put more pressure on the people and give them more law. Stop that. Fear God, right? What you need to know is the grace of God. Jesus Christ has come to rescue you, and now you see your sin more, it, you, see, you see it more clearly now, but now may you see a greater Savior who draws you away from those things. You see, what it is to encounter Solomon's last words is this. I see that what I was trying to, to do to make myself free has actually enslaved me. I need the grace of Jesus Christ to produce in me a reverence for God. I see that in my secrets, I've been trying to build something enduring for me in this secret life, this shameful life. I feel this guilt, but I also am sensing it doesn't provide for me this everlasting pleasure. It doesn't work. I'm seeing it. It's like trying to quench your thirst with seawater. I am dying because of the things I'm drinking. I see it. Oh, Jesus, change my heart. Help me be unafraid of the secrets in my heart. Unafraid, because the cross is so great and so big. Solomon is pressing upon us our creaturely obligation to a holy God, and I press upon you the grace of Jesus Christ that came for all your obligations and fulfilled all your obligations to a holy God. Live in that joy. Worship in that joy. Respond in obedience in that joy. Oh, do you see the misery of mankind modeled first in Adam and Eve? Naked, exposed, sowing some branches from a tree to cover themselves, and God comes and kills some animal and covers them, and that's a picture of the human experience. And you see what we have in the gospel in verse 21 of Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God, this covering, listen to this, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from law-keeping. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. One of the most important sentences in all the Bible. You see, you, you are now covered in the righteousness of Jesus. And this beautiful, gracious, merciful act of God will produce in you a reverence for God. It, it will happen. The day of hiding has begun to subside. We all are still hiding. That's what church is about. It's okay. Confess your sins, repent, keep moving, big cross. Confess your sins, repent, keep moving, big cross. That's it. That's what you can learn this summer, by the way, in the gospel-centered life. Ecclesiastes 
is this ink on paper, and it's largely law. Christ is this beautiful love of God written in his body and lived out in bodied truth and beauty. Ecclesiastes is is this exhortation concludes with this obligation. And uh, Jesus Christ is the grace fulfilling the law. Ecclesiastes is this sober judgment coming when all secrets will be revealed and, and live in this fear. May this anchor you to this to meaningful activity. But Jesus Christ sobers us up with it is finished. Live in that, live in that beautiful truth. Find your whole duty to respond to God in light of the, the statement, it is finished. Ecclesiastes is a goad, an extension of lo- the law provoking our conscience. But we all, in honesty, say, Solomon, neither could you do this, nor can we. And the Holy Spirit now is working to assure us that our conscience can be at peace because through his stripes we are healed. And so we have been delivered by the magnificent grace of Jesus Christ. The law's loud thunder has been quenched. We have been delivered. And so from this extraordinary truth that you have been justified through Jesus Christ, that truth will now be the foundational truth from which your obedience will spring. No merit on your own. No law-keeping on your own. No obedience on your own justified by faith, declared righteous, covered with his righteousness, from that, dwell on it, dwell on it, love it, reflect on it, study it, rehearse it, remember it, keep going and watch what that truth will produce in you. And it will look like the fear of God, which is a summary of your whole duty. Let's pray.